This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Well may we say, God save the Queen, because nothing will save the Governor-General. You know I've searched my heart to prove There's better ways to push and pull Hey, whatever gets you through these days Hello and welcome to Well May We Say, a progressive podcast about Australian politics. This is episode 97 for Thursday, 27th of June, 2019. I'm Jeremy Sear, and each week I'll be joined by a different guest host to help me discuss what's just been happening to our country, what's likely to happen, and hopefully what we can do about it. Uh, tonight's guest host is a returning guest host, Tom Ballard. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you, Jeremy. Pleased to be back. Hello, everyone. I, I wanted to get you back finally for <laughs> a podcast where we had some good news uh, and some, you know, some positive stuff to look into. And so this, I mean, this week we've got it all, haven't we? We've got... Both big parties and pretty much the entirety of the media determined to cut a huge revenue hole in the budget so the public services can't be funded. We've Check. got a campaign for religious privilege at the expense of freedom. So not freedom of speech, just religious privilege over the rest of us. Check. We've got uh, Scummo even contemplating a war in Iran. <laughs> oh, and then and, and to, add, to add to that, like we'll go into these one at a time. But uh, I just figure that after that shit sandwich, maybe maybe we. The only way to really top it is the news that one of the uh, refugees that we sent to Manus uh, set himself on fire and is now being charged with arson and suicide. I hate doing this show, Jeremy. It's never It always makes me depressed and makes me feel bad, and you should feel bad, because when I talk about these things with you, I blame you. I feel like you're personally responsible for the shitty nature of our country and the news. So fuck you for asking me to come back. Look, it's only like half an hour to an hour, Tom. At the end of that... <laughs> You won't have to think about those things because they'll magically disappear. They'll be like, done. They're only present during the recording of the podcast. We'll fix them. We'll fix them on the podcast, yeah. And if we don't, we just don't have to think about them anymore because we've done the podcast. So, yeah, we've done our know, bit. If it, wasn't, if it wasn't for this podcast, <laughs> we wouldn't have to pay any attention to this awful shit. It'd just happen. Yay! Uh, with no effect on any of us. So the first thing that's really exciting is knowing that even though... Labor, I'm pretty sure, went to the election saying that they weren't going to be voting for giant tax cuts that were going to cut a permanent uh, hole in the in the revenue that means that if they were to ever return to government, they wouldn't have that revenue there in order to spend it on things like, I don't know, raising Newstart or, I don't know, public services. Do you remember, I'm pretty sure that they told their voters that they were going to stand against that stuff. Do you, do you remember, Tom, I, it was a long time ago, that election that was like a month and a little bit ago, like... Do you remember? I, I seem to remember them saying they'd oppose that stuff. Yeah, I, th- I think that was the general vibe, is that if you voted for the Labour Party, then you uh, ideally wouldn't want them to roll over on anything that you believe in, in terms of how we should operate as a civil society and uh, take tax money to spend on public services to make lives better for Australian citizens. That's I think that was the general impression I got. On the other hand, we do live in a country where if the Labour Party had slithered over the line by one seat like the Libs did, the Liberals would definitely be voting for the Labour Party policies on tax <laughs> <laughs> it's just the way it works. Yes, they would respect the mandate. They love that mandate. Everyone respects that mandate. That's why we have a parliament. It's so that the party that's got a one-seat majority, everyone else has to vote with them. That's that's why we have oppositions. But the Labour Party is... We're being sarcastic, but the goddamn Labour Party is buying into this bullshit and sort of saying, we're not going to play po- politics with this issue. We're, we're going to be constructive. It's like you're a political party. Do politics. Oppose the shitty government, please. Like almost half the country just voted 
against those tax cuts. In fact, if you, I mean, technically, I suppose, um, if the only party that was particularly proposing those tax cuts was the Liberal Party and 58% of Australians in the lower house voted against the Liberal Party, as in voted for someone else, I'm not quite sure that the, that the Liberals with their um, slightly less than 42% of the vote actually... Like, it's Why can't Labor actually stand up for the huge number of Australians that oppose this? And yet we have... 100% coverage in the media that is like this, these tax cuts, at least the stage two tax cuts, you know, that, that you can't even argue against them. Like a month and a half ago, one of the big two parties was arguing against them. Apparently we're like, well, they stood that over by one seat. So all of those arguments are now completely invalid. What? And like, there's no argument. Like, Tom, have you seen in any of the news media any coverage of like, the impact, like anybody holding either the Liberals or the Labour Party to account, it's like if you take $158 billion of revenue out of the budget, which which is in deficit, how on earth are you going to fund public service? Like, what are you going to cut to pay for it? No, it'll, sti- it'll all pay for itself, you see, Jeremy, because it'll stimulate the economy. Because when you give people earning to over two hundred grand a year a tax cut, they immediately spend it at their local milk bar and pay it on the basic services that they're struggling to get. They don't put it into banks or offshore tax accounts or just put it, you know, make it make it save up and invest it back into the stock market or what have you. Or push up housing. They're out there on the street putting it straight back into the hands of working Australians and then that's how the economy fires up and uh, everything works out great. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, there is a lot of uh, evidence uh, that shows that that's exactly what... Well... I mean, there must be. Tell me, is there any evidence in whatsoever that giving tax cuts to rich people actually stimulates the economy as opposed to, I don't know, um, raising new stuff beyond like $40 a day? Oh, let's, let's, we'll come back to the tax cuts for just a second, but let's quickly just note that Labor, who were like, before the election, we, we can't commit to raising new stuff. Like, it's definitely too low, yeah. but we won't commit to raising it. What we'll do is we'll have an 18 month uh, review into it, uh, and, then, and then we'll decide what our policy is. Guess what Labor's done now? Uh, in relation to that review into Newstart. It's gone. It's gone. They tried. Yeah, they've just... <laughs> they tried. And if you want to raise Newstart, you're going to have to convince the Liberal National Coalition, Jeremy, of the merits <laughs> of that idea. I mean, it's not like the opposition, the party could, you know, lobby for that. Uh, maybe maybe even, I don't know, organise people's power outside of the parliament, God forbid, try and get a mass movement of people, incorporating people like the Unemployed Workers Union to prosecute the case that people are living below the poverty line on the unemployment uh, payment. No, no, no. You're going to have to wait for Matthias Corman to f- suddenly find a soul within his ribcage and commit to the idea that the new South payment should be raised. Uh, uh, if raising it to 75 by $75 a week would cost us, I believe, $3 billion a year, which is a tiny fraction of the kind of cuts that we're talking about with these um, tax cut package that the coalition is trying to get through the parliament. But no, no, no. That is the only hope now. Wait, are you saying that $3 billion is less than... Are you saying that three billion? I think is less it is. I don't, didn't do maths in what? school, but I'm pretty sure that's right. Yeah. But I, I love that the whole Labor um, lame excuse before the election was, "Well, we can't commit to a figure because there hasn't. We need to do a review first. Hey, dickheads, you've got three years before the next election. <laughs> you know what you could do? You could yeah. do that eighteen month review now and have the figure <laughs> ready for the next election. No, if you were genuine about it, which you're not, of course. We have to have a review. We have to. It has to be like a Senate inquiry or whatever. A Senate inquiry that inevitably just serves up the same partisan bullshit every single time. The party that wants the policy says it's good in the majority report, and the minority report says it's bad, and it's just we learn absolutely nothing. Get the Australian Institute to do the fucking research and fucking commit to raising it. You fucking idiots. <laughs> even a seven, even a review, like any any kind of review would be enough information that Labor could announce a policy. They don't have... The review doesn't have to come back and persuade the government because the government are amoral monsters. They're not going to do it. But 
they would if Labor was going to come to the next election with an actual promise to people. I mean, obviously, the whole point of this is that they don't want to actually have a figure. They don't want to commit to anything. They want to have the fudge next election to say, oh, well, we'll have to do the review. Yeah, it's just, I mean, they want to buy into the bullshit, you know, responsible economic managers nonsense. They're scared of being uh, accused of, I don't know, <laughs> being humane or, you know, wasting money, hardworking Australians' money on something as ridiculous as helping people survive in an economy that's fucking everybody over. And that they want to avoid that charge completely. And they think that... Um, and Jeremy Poxon from the Australian Unemployed Workers Union told me about this uh, this week on my podcast. They think that... Oh, you've had Jeremy Yeah, on. yeah, yeah. Oh, awesome. And I know he's done this podcast. He's, he's a great dude, doing good work. Um, but they just take these kind of votes for, for granted. Poor people are automatically going to vote Labor, they reckon. So now we should go for all those small L liberal voters um, who are worried about the coalition going too far right wing, according to Andrew Lee. Apparently that is now... Uh, the Labor Party is the natural home for those voters now. And, of course, those people love raising new starts, so... So go for well, it. because it does. People who are uh, who don't give a shit about the poor and who may prioritise tax cuts, you know, they're definitely going to vote for the Liberal Light Party. Totally, because there's nothing nothing that's is more inspiring than the Liberal Light. We're like, <laughs> well, they just vote for the leaves, you muppets. Mm. Like, the um, I did I did see uh, some of the Labor hacks on Twitter attacking Jeremy, being like, oh, go and get a job. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that campaigning for um, the rights of of poor Australians is actually. A, a far more valuable job than anything that labour hacks are doing. And it's not a job. He's, he volunteers uh, to do that work. And, of course... Oh, so that's right. It's unpaid. <laughs> it's an unpaid job that he's doing. After, yeah. yeah, to try and better the, the lives of the 80,000 people who are on the Work for Dole program or the people out there in an economy where there are 15 unemployed people for every available job. Uh, okay, can I just say something to the Greens? Um, there are a number of Centrelink officers around the nation and people who are on Centrelink do actually have to vote. Um, they do. It's not America where they can just sort of force um, poor people to just disengage completely. Um, bloody in the election campaign, have signs up, promise so that the people who are in there know that you are promising to treat them humanely. <laughs> Make like, and don't just wait till the next election. Have billboards around those offices now. Yeah. Like, start campaigning on it. Like, don't give the, don't give Labor this like, this fudge that people are automatically going to vote Labor um, even, where, even where they're being screwed to the ground and that, that, that a vague promise to consider it in 18 months is going to be enough. Be up there campaigning right now. There should be... I, I shouldn't be able to walk past a Centrelink office without seeing a big billboard for the Greens saying, you're being screwed and um, we're the party that recognises that and we'll be doing... and uh, we'll be voting in Parliament to increase your... Um, increase your standard of living... And um, the more of us there are, the better our chances of doing that. So vote for us. What do you think the Libs are going to do with this package? I mean, they're, they're sort of saying there are no deals, there's no horse trading whatsoever. They refuse to separate the third stage of the tax cuts from the package. I guess they're betting that Labor won't want to vote down the immediate tax cuts for the lower income earners um, in the initial first two stages. How do you think that's going to play out? Well, it's 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 hard for the Liberals to know absolutely that Labor are going to completely chicken out. It's like, <laughs> except for the fact that Labor keeps on repeatedly saying that's exactly what they're going to do. They're basically two trucks driving head on towards each other, but Labor's got a big sign in the window saying, "Don't worry about it. We're going to pull. We're going to swerve off the road probably before you even get to us. We're just going to swerve off like halfway <laughs> along. Don't worry about us. We're really bad at playing chicken." Labor should be campaigning against the tax cuts full stop. They should be saying the budget can't afford it. They're not responsible. There should be stimulus, but the stimulus uh, um, should be coming from raising the public services. That, that actually that money will come in. We should be, you know, the problem is that wages are flat. The problem is that um, we're grinding the poor into, for, so far into poverty that they're not able to spend in the economy. Like, that's what we should be doing. 
But Labor's not going to argue that. Fine. That I mean, not fine. I mean, don't vote for them. They're, they're, every progressive should look at them and go, why? Why would anybody who's a progressive vote for you, Muppets? Yeah. You're you're you you've in, you're entirely on board with the libs on tax cuts. You're entirely on board with them with with the torturing refugees. Like, what is the point of you? But. Ignoring that for a second, let's say for a minute that, that Labor was right and the second stage tax cuts were stimulus, they were going to be a positive thing, they were going to help lower to middle income earners, which is not right, they skewed well beyond the median wage and stuff. But anyway, say, say the second stage tax cuts were a positive thing. The fact that Labor can't, can't be standing there and saying, um, and they, they are currently still sticking to the second stage ones, but they, they can't, the idea that they've been out there saying, well, look, if, if the Libs won't split the package, I guess we'll have to vote for these ludicrous stage three, very expensive ones for the very, very rich. And, and that the Libs are getting away with it because the media aren't... Basically, the Libs are holding the stage two tax cuts hostage to the stage three ones. The Libs are saying, nah, um, we know you guys want the stage two ones, but these very unpopular stage three ones, we're not going to get them through without being attached to the stage two ones. So we're not going to separate them. And all of the media are blaming Labor. If Labor votes against them, none of the media are turning around and just saying, hang on, Labor said they'll vote for the stage two ones. If, if the Libs refuse to split them and they go down, that's the Libs' fault. Yeah. They held them hostage. But none of the media are doing that. The, the Libs are getting a free pass to be like, oh, we can't split these things that are totally different and could definitely be obviously split and we could get the stage two ones passed immediately tomorrow because Labor said they'll vote for them. And yeah, I genuinely think at this point that because of the unbelievably one-sided media coverage of all this, if Labor... Labor will fold because they know that the, Libra, the, the entire media are going to turn around and blame them for the Liberals refusing to split them and nobody's going to hold the Libs to account. Nobody's going to turn around and say, why didn't you let the stage two ones through. You could have got them through. Labor said they'd vote for them. Like, it's madness. Yeah. Labor dictates uh, government policy, even though they're in opposition, apparently. I, yeah. I'm perfectly happy for the media holding Labor to account, but the idea that the, that the Libs are able to hold the stage two cuts hostage to the stage three ones and nobody calls them on it, and that, like, to be fair to Labor, in that environment, no wonder they're gutless and fold. Like, it's, yeah. in, it's ludic- Like, you would hope that they are better at arguing it, I haven't heard them use the expression holding the stage two tax cuts hostage. I haven't heard them making that making that point clearly. Um, I mean, I, I if if I were the Labor Party and I had decided the stage two ones should definitely go through, that's what I'd be shouting. I'd be like, um, the Libs, don't, you don't want the stage three ones. You want the stage two ones. We're offering them. The Libs are saying no, you can't have them unless we get something else. The Libs are insisting on this. Mm. Um, they're holding them hostage. Yeah. Holding them hostage. Holding your tax cuts hostage. Holding them hostage. Use the freaking phrase. Make it clear so that people can't miss it. No, instead they're spending their time arguing over whether people under 200 grand a year are in the top end of town. Oh. <laughs> Even though the median income of, a, of an Australian worker is $52,000 a year. So, yeah, I'd say four times the median income of an Australian worker puts you in a pretty comfortable position in our society, today. Why the hell should somebody on 200 be taxed at the same tax rate as somebody on 40? Ridiculous. Because it's easy and bracket creep. I mean, that was incredible too on Insiders on the weekend. Michael Rowland was saying, oh, if you have a flat flat tax um, from from people from 40 grand to 200 grand, then won't that avoid the annoying uh, b- issue of bracket creep where people earn more money and move into a higher tax bracket? I'm like, that's not bracket creep bullshit. That's just you earning more money and so you get taxed higher because that's what a progressive tax system is. And there are two things there. One is they pretend that this is in distance. Like, they act like... They don't understand how the brackets work. That that you know, yeah. they they act like you know, if you go from this bracket to the next on the top part of your income, then suddenly you're taxed more on all your income. 
It's not. You're only taxed at a higher rate in relation to the bit over that. You still like yes. they, they pretend they think that people don't understand it, and they don't. Like they and and the media, including the ABC, are happy to let that misunderstanding go through. But um, the other one of the Michael Rowland thing on, on Insiders, um, shall, shall I play his entirely uh, neutral and, and reasonable question that wasn't in any way uh, framing everything in the Liberals' completely bonkers terms? Please. Well, are you persisting with the politics of envy by not supporting a tax cut for all Australians? Oh, of course not. <laughs> ah, the politics of envy. A completely <laughs> neutral... Unbiased, non-partisan term that makes total sense and is absolutely a real thing uh, that should be put to uh, <laughs> a Labor member in a uh, political interview on the ABC. The politics of envy. How does Michael Rowland think that you can use a phrase that is such partisan nonsense? It's like his defence on Twitter was, oh, I was just putting, uh, I think it was Corman's words uh, to to the um, Labor State Treasurer. I was, just, I, was just putting, I was just putting the other side so he could respond to them. Now, I, I don't recall in that clip anywhere, Michael, that you said um, Corman says this or Corman puts it this way or, or in fact, hell, even better, some kind of fact check on um, he uses the phrase politics of envy. Like, it's so nonsense. What, define politics of envy. They just mean... The idea that rich people should pay their share. It's the idea of people being screwed looking at the people who aren't being screwed and who are screwing them and going, hey, that's bullshit. That should stop. And they're like, ah, you're just envious of us not being screwed. <laughs> Yo, you'd like, you'd like to be up here not being screwed, wouldn't you? You're just envious. <laughs> so, you know, it's just envy. If only you guys would just be happy with being screwed and us not being screwed, wouldn't the world be a better place? Just, just give up the sin of envy. Make peace with it. Yeah. You're looking at my situation and my wealth and comfortable lifestyle that I've gained because I was born into the right family and were given several breaks and family connections allowed me to succeed in the field of business. And you feel like it's not fair that you're struggling to uh, make ends meet and feed your family because you didn't have those opportunities. What's wrong with you? Oh, young people today who like want to have the same opportunity to buy a house that, that their you know, parents' generation had. I mean, why, why can't they just accept that that's not a thing that they can do anymore? Unless, oh, sorry, Judith Sloan this week was like, and the others going, well, they, how can there be a, a generational clash when um, kids are borrowing from the bank of mum and dad and the bank of mum and dad is one of the top 10 home loan lenders in Australia now? And you're like, can you even hear yourself? Isn't the fact that <laughs> people can't buy a house unless they have rich parents evidence of a generational divide? Are you insane? Yeah. Just have the right mum and dad. It's easy. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the problem with young people today. They're so consumed with envy that that doesn't occur to them to just go back in time and be born to richer parents who are happy to stump them up for the house. Idiots. Stupid, envious people. I mean, it's it's nauseating because there's no sense to it. Like, it is fundamentally a line that that no self no person with a brain should be repeating uncritically, and it shouldn't be it shouldn't be uttered on the ABC because it's just nonsense. The politics of envy. What any kind of campaign that people should people who are being screwed at the bottom should be done should be treated better, um, and yes, it should come at the expense of the people who can afford it. And just reducing that to envy is moronic, and that's 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 our counterpoint to, counterbalance to the entire Murdoch press. Yeah, I'm surprised he didn't just accuse them of a class war, which is apparently when you want to tax the rich uh, to fund public services as opposed to you know the rich screwing over the poor. Oh. Have you seen uh, Victoria this week? They've announced um, they're going to start uh, in public schools. 
So I don't know how this, I don't know what will happen in, in private schools, but in public schools they're going to start from next year uh, taking phones out of kids and putting them in lockers. Some public schools don't have lockers, so God knows how that's going to work. But anyway, uh, and so they don't have their mobile phones throughout the day, uh, and obviously kids use them for I don't know for, for um, paying for lunches. They use them for um, staying in touch. Like it's a you know it's a fundamental communication tool now. And hell, I I I get break out in a cold sweat if I'm more than like five meters away from my phone, but I'm fine. I'm fine. I can stop <laughs> using my phone and drinking this V anytime. There was a debate on Twitter this morning about about this, and there was a guy who came in and was like, um, "As a managing director of this factory or whatever, uh, you know, we made sure that, that's not like that unusual. We we made sure that the uh, factory workers, uh, you know, they can't have their mobile phones." And I'm like, "I'm willing to bet that the people who are making that decision have their mobile phones with them throughout the day. Like, Australia is." How much more clear an example of like the class divide could you have than that? You've got the uh, managerial class, which can be trusted with their mobile phones, but then you've got the peasants, the plebs working in the factory that have to have their phones taken away from them because it'll reduce productivity. <laughs> they've got to focus, right? Yeah. They've got to get ready for the eventuality where they won't be able to afford a phone anymore because they'll become too expensive. Yeah. And they'll be owned by the rich. Whereas the vastly, more, vastly better paid managerial class, they can have their phones during the day. Of course. They're better people. They can be trusted with it. Anyway, so, Tom, what can we, as people who are talking on a podcast, mm-hmm. do do to... So, this is... The tax cut thing is huge. Cause this is, this, so, it's like back in 2004 where Costello got those ludicrous tax cuts through that have given us a, what, $60 billion a year hold to the budget. They've given it, it's, it's the budget deficit ever since. Like, he only it only was smothered in, in the Howard era because of the um, mining boom. But then as soon as that ended, like the structural deficit that Costello and Howard created has been hitting us ever since. That that money is gone. Like Labor hasn't, it's not like Labor's standing up and saying, hey, why don't we just return to the tax rates, rates of 2004 and we wouldn't have a deficit. We'd have uh, money to spend on public services. You know, all we have to do is go back to the 2004 rates. Like once those cuts came through, it became impossible for Labor to ever bring them back. And now Labor's going to do it again. And we're going to have this, another giant hole that is permanent. Like, if Labor ever wins government again, that money's gone. They can't get it back. How do we stop them doing this? Like, ring your Labor member. Tell them. I mean, they can't, they're going to have to do the stage two ones now. They've locked themselves into it. But at least, hopefully, we can get them to stop folding on the stage three ones and arguing it better, maybe? What can we do, Tom? We're on a podcast. This is, this yeah. is where we can stop it, can't we? There must be some way. <laughs> you would hope so. I mean, I guess... Uh, uh... I I don't know. I yeah. I, I don't know. It, it feels like. I mean, I, I I secretly think the coalition doesn't want these tax cuts to go through because once they do, they have nothing else. Because <laughs> it was literally the only policy they went to the election with. So they'll be a bit screwed. If if Labor screw this up for them or stop them in some way getting through the tax package, and they could just moan about that for three years and um and shit on Labor, they'd be probably quite happy to doing that. Either that that. Oh, off- yeah, yeah. The, the reason the economy is now in recession is because Labor blocked those of tax course, cuts. Yes, genius. <laughs> Um, I mean, it's particularly concerning when you see like backbenchers like Peter Khalil sort of saying, "Oh yeah, we should just roll over on this, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't uh, yeah, come in the way of these tax cuts, no matter what." I'm like, "You're a backbencher from nowhere. Why, why is your hot new take to just do everything that the coalition uh, wants you to do? You weirdo." Um, I mean, yeah. to be fair, he did say before the election to everybody who voted for him that he was going to do that. He. Oh wait, no, he, no. Didn't. <laughs> <laughs> he campaigned just against those. That's tax what he was wanting. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, I don't know. If, if there's a way to manifest spines in the backs of uh, Labor members, particularly Anthony Albanese, then um, we should get working on that technology. But um, I, I don't know. And, and particularly just straight out of the gate, you've sort of seen a very depressing shift towards the right. 
uh, clinging to the desperate centre, uh, uh, chucking out of any kind of skerrick of decent progressive policies from, from Labour and this insane idea that they have to head towards the centre and become more centrist and palatable and liberal light in order to, to win the next election. So I, I, I honestly don't know, man. i got nothing. Well, to be fair, the Liberals, um, the Liberals did win an election after losing in 2010. They did come back into power in 2013 by aping all of Labor's... Po- no, they didn't. Wait a minute. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> maybe, maybe instead of Labor adopting Liberal policies, Labor could adopt the Liberal tactic of doubling down on them and going hard on your own policies. Yeah. Uh, it, it does seem to me that perhaps if people contact their local Labor member, and I'm interested I don't have one, I've only got a local, local Liberal member. Um, I've got that revolting Michael Suko here. Um, but if you've got a local Labor member, hell, even if you don't, just ring my elbow's office, um, maybe ring them up and point out to them that they, if they can't um, hang the holding the tax cuts hostage um, to stage three stuff around the Libs' necks, if they can't do that, then what on earth are they even in politics for? Like, okay, we get that at this point it's now, you know, they've already signed on to this giant slashing of revenue that is the stage two cuts. So I don't think I don't think there's anything they can do now. They've locked themselves in, um, which basically is a reason whether in future all the rest of us should vote for the Greens instead of Labor. But in terms of what Labor can do, I, I don't, I don't think, I don't think they. I mean, they've they've argued now that those tax cuts are important. They've they've seeded the argument. And the problem with that is that they've now made it so they can't really argue. It's harder to argue against the stage three ones because they've already accepted the premise that tax cuts are good for the economy. Yeah. So it's really hard to argue against it when you're seeding it part way. Like they would be in a much stronger rhetorical position if they had stood up and said, we can't afford it. It's a huge hole in the budget. Um, yeah, the Libs are being irre- reckless and irresponsible to pass any of them. Um, and uh, they'll be coming after you. They're going to be cutting. They've, they've got to pay for it somehow. It's going to come out of you guys. Everybody listening, that $158 billion is coming from you. Mm. Not going to you, it's coming from you. But anyway, they haven't done that. Um, I do think that if we contact their officers and make it really clear that they, that we expect that, they, that if they are going to fold on stage two, they should at least be doing a better job of distinguishing between what they're willing to do and the stage three stuff. And hell, be pointing out to them. Use the word hostage. Point out that the Libs are holding their ta- these supposedly precious tax cuts hostage. Get that message out there. Don't waffle on about who the top end of town are. Or don't be distracted. Have you noticed that Libs don't answer the question that journalists ask, ask them? They just repeat their talking yeah. point. Why is Labor so bad at this? Like, Labor isn't principled. The one thing they're supposed to be good at is the politics, and they shit at the politics. What are they for? Do it, comrades. Call them. Give them a hard time. Mm. Do you know, Tom, after the election, we had a couple of episodes where we actually talked to the Labor Party about, you know avenues that they could take that might put them in a stronger position for 2022. And you'll be surprised to hear that they have done the opposite Uh on pretty much everything. Uh I'm beginning to think that that there's not that many people in the ALP who are listening to this podcast. But they would love it. Well, we we are encouraged. We we do want the best for the ALP in the sense that, well, we do. We we want them to be better than they are. (sighs) So the other horrific story this week that for some reason is getting even more prominent uh, coverage than, you know, the, the devastation of our ability to of the government's ability to provide public services in the future. But apparently, even more important than that, uh, according to the vast majority of the nation's newspapers and uh, media outlets, is Israel bloody falau. Tom, <sighs> it's kind of impossible, right? Like it, it is. It we we cannot talk about this without acknowledging the fact that this is insane. How much 
political fucking time and effort and capital is spent on this issue. The bl- the ink that has been spilt, the TV and radio time that has been fed into this, like we just cannot ignore the fact that it is insane how much time and energy Australia has spent on debating uh, the freedom of speech of a millionaire homophobe whose freedom of speech isn't under threat at all. And the amount of concern and outcry and outrage around this issue is just, it's actually profoundly obnoxious and horribly misguided. But I understand why you bring it up because it's been fucking everywhere this week and what else are you going to do? Hey, Tom, are you suggesting that there's another way to help the the Australian, quote, Christian lobby uh, grift a bunch of gullible idiots into giving them two million bucks other than with, like, wall-to-wall propaganda coverage from the nation's biggest <laughs> media outlet uh, company, uh, Empire, I, I feel. How else are they going to do it? Like, the ACL needs that $2 million to be richer and do more evil shit. And it, without the kind of... It's, it's really hard for them when they're only arguing for religious privilege as a special power that you have to um, over an employer without advocating for actual freedom of speech for... I mean, it's not like not like anybody who, A, is proposing any kind of legislation to improve employee rights against employers. In fact, I feel like if Labor and the left pretty much stood up at this point and just said, oh, oh, we're wanting to talk about uh, the right of employees to have uh, freedom of speech uh, and not be able to be sacked for it uh, at the expense of employers. Cool. Let's put that up. Let's let's talk about the rights of employees against employers. Thank you for bringing it up. Let's do that. I feel like the right wing ardor for this um, subject would cool dramatically. <laughs> well, this 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 is the only bit that makes me a little um, queasy. I'm not sure how things play out. I'm interested to hear what you think. I mean, Simon Copeland tweeted: "The left seems to get very." Um, passionate about employment contracts and employers' rights over employees' rights when it comes to a certain culture war issue that they're interested in. And I am somewhat concerned by the number of people on the left sort of saying, hey, he signed the contract and uh, this is what this is the deal of his, of his job and employees have a right to demand what people say, do and don't say on um, social media. I don't know if that's true. I mean, I can't be bothered caring or investing a skerrick of my time in concern for uh, Israel Folau's uh, plight because it um, doesn't exist and he'll be absolutely fine. But but what do you think of that? If we accept that employers have a, have a right to dictate what, what employees do, do and don't say on social media, that's there's some issues there, right? That's a little bit problematic. Oh, huge. I, so, but I don't think I don't think it's like, I don't think it's actually that problematic for the left. It's, it's like the old oh well, if a Muslim person is homophobic, you, you lefties aren't going to know what way to turn. Like yes, we are <laughs> because the homophobia is terrible, and then if you're attacking them for being Muslim, that's terrible too. Like it's not actually that complicated. We can be principled about these things. The employment things like that. I look. I would suggest that the, the the implicit position of the people who are trying to do the hey it's his contract thing their implicit position is hey you dickheads on the right are, are determined to argue that employers should have the whatever right they can write into a contract um cool well then hoist by your own bloody petard that's that's the rules you've set he's broken those rules so want to change them then let's talk about changing them i i i think it's like given the sit- setup that you want um, he's broken his own. What you say is is the important principle of contractual, uh, you know, supremacy over anything else. Um, and if you want to talk about human rights and for, rights to freedom of speech, that's a separate issue because they're not. Like I think they're just simply turning it around and trying to call the hypocrisy of it. And of course, the left is terrible doing that because we don't have any newspapers, so it gets turned around and being like, "Hey, look, lefties are suddenly arguing for employer rights," which I don't think is the point. 
that they're trying to make. I, I think that I think that the, the situation, that the resol- the ethical resolution of this is really straightforward. Um, we have uh, uh, we have a bill of rights, and people have uh, the, an actual right for, to free political communication, uh, and uh, employers, and, and there be limitations on employers sacking people um, for the, they they not be allowed to. It'd be unfair for them to be unfair dismissal if they sack somebody for things they. Uh, post in there or say in their private time. For example, the case of Banerjee, which is currently before the High Court, where she was a, an employee of the public service and she tweeted things anonymously and they found out about them. It wasn't She wasn't tweeting information. Like, obviously, public servants shouldn't tweet um, public inf- private information from the department and, and unless it's whistleblowing but um, and that there should be protections for whistleblowers. But um, this was just that they didn't like her political speech and they sacked her for it. And that's currently before the High Court. But we'd, it's it's quite possible and quite likely that she will lose because you don't have a right to, to um, current, under the current law and under the Constitution, there isn't a specific... You're supposed to have this implied right to political communication, but it's it's got so many holes in it that you don't really... It, 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 those protections aren't really there. I am more than happy for us to have uh, the protection that employers can't um, sack us for what we do uh, in our private time. Keeping in mind that the religious lobby uh, is also uh, campaigning for religious organisations to campaign the, the right to sack people for being gay, which is yes. like um, <laughs> none of these people are arguing. They're like, Falau should not be sacked for his religious beliefs, but but he, if he was a gay person, sure they should be able to sack him. Um, and they're like, oh, that's only religious organisations, but it's schools, hospitals, you know, it's whatever the Catholic. Uh, social uh, welfare um, is called like people who work for those things it's got nothing to like a catholic school can sack the garden for being gay what the hell is the relevance of that to to their religious beliefs it's mad a, a catholic hospital can sack the registrar for being a lesbian like none of these people are advocating for employers not to have the right to sack people for political speech or for not to be able to sack people for being gay like they're not interested in their private lives they only want a special religious privilege they want political speech to be able to be infringed by employers all over the place unless it's religious so mm. you and what's religious speech? It's just political speech with a metaphysical bent. Why is it yeah. that? Why is it that that you know? I, I say that uh, a, 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 you know that I believe that this group of people are are evil and should be uh, harmed, and my employer can sack me. But if I say because my God demands it, then suddenly I wouldn't be able to be sacked. Why is why should it, there be a special protection just because it's got a metaphysical element to it? It's mad. It doesn't make because any this sense. country was founded on Judeo-Christian principles, Jeremy. <laughs> Those sweet, sweet values that have stood us in such good stead and should be above all cr- criticism or uh, or interrogation. I do remember the pilgrims coming in those ships. To, wait, no, that wasn't. That's a different country. That's madness. <laughs> they are, yeah. So I, I think the solution is really straightforward. It's that um, we should all have the right to political speech. It should have nothing to do with religion. There shouldn't be it. Religion should be no more protected um, political speech than any other political speech. The idea that they should get a special privilege over anything else is ridiculous. And in terms of hate speech, like, and this was uh, was really annoying me because um, Gillian Triggs. Actually, I'll, I'll drop in the audio here of Gillian Triggs. Uh, talking about uh, how she thinks it should be balanced. I do believe that we have to be very careful about constraining the rights to the expression of a religious view. We can think anything we like, but the the much more difficult question is when does the expression of your religious view uh, create... Um, or impinge upon the rights of other people. Now, as you will know very well, um, uh, Falau has has criticised not only those who uh, are homosexual, but drunkards, thieves, uh, atheists, uh, fornicators, adulterers, and so on. So, I mean, he cast a very wide net in saying that a very large number of us are going to go to hell. Now, most of us could dismiss that as, uh, as fanciful or something we don't believe in, but it is a view that he 
believes in, as I believe, and I don't know him, I've never met him, but I imagine and it seems to be a view he holds in good faith. It's almost like Julian Triggs can't see the difference between the harm that, that demonising an already vulnerable minority, like LGBTI people, uh, it's like she can't see that that's different from ad- uh, attacking, saying that atheists are going to go to hell. Like, atheists aren't a persecuted group. Atheists aren't more likely to commit suicide. They're not persecuted in the way that, I mean, yes, I, I know the ACL would like us to be, like, but they've got a couple more steps to get to the theocracy before that happens. Like, the fact, the idea that Gillian Triggs, Professor Gillian Triggs, can't see the difference between speech that demonises a vulnerable minority and speech that just criticises people who are otherwise fine... It's absurd. How can she not see the difference? It's like it's very bizarre. I think, yeah, look, I have a lot of respect for Professor Triggs, but I think she spends a lot of her time in the uh, you know, liberal legal rights, human rights world and uh, the balancing of human rights and religious freedom sort of, you know, in an academic theoretical way. And uh, yeah, maybe when issues like this come up in the real world, when your initial reaction should be, fuck this noise, um, she gets into her legal head. I mean, you saw it on the question on Q&A on Monday night as well. The first question was, can't you see that Israel Folau believes this genuinely? So when he tells, when he warns gay people that they're going to hell if they don't repent, that's actually an act of love and compassion. And that's actually coming from his heart and he wants to help people. <laughs> Fuck off. The only way you get away with that is if you're, you believe that homosexuality is a choice, is a behaviour that can somehow be changed or fixed or averted. And the simple fact is, I am gay. I could marry a woman tomorrow and have mediocre, disappointing sex with a woman for the rest of my life and I would still be gay. Being gay is part of who I am. It is part of my identity. I cannot change it and it doesn't hurt anyone. And so telling someone that they are going to hell for being gay is not an accident of compassion or love it is cruel it is homophobic and it is psychopathic and keep in mind this is a country where uh, there is and always has been and maybe the numbers are the rates are dropping but certainly uh, no thanks to people like the acl and israel Folau, where there's homophobic violence where we're telling people that being gay is wrong which is what he's doing inspires people who think that or are inclined to that to be to take that out on if, if being gay is wrong, then people who are gay are wrong, and they are legitimate targets of violence in the minds of some of those people. Like homophobic violence is a real thing, both you know out by strangers, but also by families of people who are gay. Like the the number of LGBTI people who are homeless, who are being who are rejected by their families and kicked out. The number of people like these are real things. That speech does real harm to real people. It's not a matter of yeah. oh you offended my delicate sen- liberal sensibilities. It's that speech that promotes hatred against an already marginalized group causes harm. And I yeah. would hope that somebody like Julian Triggs too could could like if if you're not the affected group, if you're not the target of hate speech and if you can't see how it's harmful, then shut up or, or, or talk to, let somebody who is affected do it. Or at the very least, say, I'm not in the affected group. So it's not, I can't necessarily put, my, have, put myself in the position of a person who's affected by this speech. And then butt and say whatever ridiculous thing you want to say. But not even having the, the awareness to be like, hmm, perhaps my, my personal experience is not sufficient to give me the full understanding of the impact this sort of stuff might have. Yeah.
If people want to hear uh, direct uh, pieces or read direct pieces from people who are in that group of the LGBTQI community, David Mars piece for The Guardian, that sort of seems to be going off a little bit on Twitter mm. today. That's very good about the hypocrisy of these religious people who are very happy to um, uh, yeah, decry that their freedoms are being uh, infringed but won't look at the fact that they, as you mentioned, uh, are very happy to allow businesses and schools to fire queer people. And Lane Sainties is an interesting one too for, for BuzzFeed. I mean, she's sort of it's titled everyone is wrong about israel falau and she talks about the fact that um what he said really sucks and is bad it's not a fringe view the idea that these are fringe beliefs is absolutely wrong particularly when our prime minister is someone who you know let's be honest we all know probably does think the gay people are going to hell as his faith dictates but she also warns about you know firing falau turning him into something of a of a martyr or at least won't go the distance in terms of confronting or um, challenging the kind of views that Israel put out there, so that was interesting reading. If people want to check it out, exactly because we're, we're not we're not wanting the thing to keep going. Like Rugby Australia made a decision that they want. Okay, so I suppose I didn't. I, I, by saying that I think that the employers shouldn't be able to sack people for their views, I haven't addressed the thing that how do we deal with harmful speech. I think they should. Be, it shouldn't be up to the employers to do it. It should be if people publish in the same way as if somebody's up there, you know, a neo-Nazi's up there declaring that Jewish people should be um, harmed. If or any other, there there is hate speech that causes real harm, and we, as people who've like experienced the twentieth century, recognise that words sticks and stones may break my words, that but words will never hurt me is not true. Words lead to the violence that, and it needs to be cut off at the source. Mm. And yeah, as you say, these sorts of views you have to stop them before they hit a certain critical mass, uh, or if they have hit that critical mass, you need to push them back so that that, that they don't, that doesn't remain a, a, a prevalent view where people are in genuine harm in the community. And I would suggest that the correct response to this sort of thing is that there should be, sexual orientation should be a, a, ca- a category that is protected under, um, under hate speech laws. And the consequence for somebody like Flower promoting that is that they should be penalised in the same way as anyone who was going to be out there um, attacking Jewish people or any other um, group that's been the victim of, of hate and harm or might be in the future. Like, I don't think it should be... I don't think we should be going, hey, employers should deal with this. It, employers shouldn't have that power, but the state certainly should because it's the only way to stop that stuff. And like, what? If Falau wasn't... Now that Falau's not employed by Rugby Australia, he should be fine to spout whatever hateful crap he wants that it, with his large soapbox? No, there should still be laws stopping that because it causes harm. Mm. I mean, yeah, I mean, we just know if he'd said if he said if he included Jews on that list, uh, if he had Jews that go to hell, uh, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Right wing people would in no way be uh, out there in full force with the same uh, passion. I would suggest. I suggest that uh, Israel Flair would be uh, maligned and um, and considered a uh, a social pariah because of it because of those views. But for some reason, you can still shit on the gays and you're going to be doing okay. I might actually make the point too that where the um you know, we're over, we, we just wanted to move on from the, like, Rugby Australia did their thing. Um, the only reason it's still getting full, full on coverage is not like lefties pushing it. It's the right shamelessly using it as, uh, to promote and uh, their own culture war interests. And of course, the biggest example of that is the ACL. And I don't know if you saw this interview uh, with Martin Illis from the Australian quote, Christian lobby. Uh, where he pretty much admitted that that's that they are one hundred percent using this as a fundraising uh, tool, and that it's got nothing to do with funding his legal defence. It's about raising money for them and building up contacts for them, for their political aims, and that's one hundred percent what it's about. 
So here's Martin Illis with David Koch on Sunrise. Now, I think I'll drop out the bit where Koch just tried to be like, hey, your religion's a bit weird. Check out some things that we've I've poorly researched and pulled out, pulled out of the Bible and be like, hey, you believe these things. And Martin's like, well, I won't take Christian uh, theological advice from you because Koch doesn't get them right at all. He's just like, hey, I read a, a meme on the internet somewhere at some point and, oh, look, I could go and put them together. Like, there's lots of shit you could throw at Martin Illis and Koch does a terrible job of it. But look, the, the fundamental point, I'll just play here martin uh making it clear or admitting really what they're using it for i suppose a a big issue is why does he need to raise money from other people he's pretty well off himself sure and the court case could earn him 10 million so use other people's money to earn 10 million bucks well, it could earn him $10 million. It could yeah. also cost him $3 million. So, look, I think the question is this. Firstly, uh, what's the point of the fundraising campaign? Um, yeah. Is it for the money? Is he saying he needs the money? It's actually more about creating a grassroots support network. It's more about PR for the case. It's more about raising the profile of the case and giving people a voice to be able to buy into the whole thing. Oh, thank you very much, Martin. <laughs> That's very informative of you to let us know that this isn't about anything other than uh, trying to get some some sweet, sweet clicks and building a grassroots campaign of homophobes so we can work together to uh, to make life worse for an already persecuted minority. Cool. Yeah, I mean, that's what the whole uh, marriage equality plebiscite thing was for, too. It was for, We had to give a whole lot of public money to Martin Nillis and the ACL to demonise the LGBTI people. Um, they they one hundred that entire thing, the the main beneficiaries of it were the religious fundamentalists who basically got given a whole lot of public money to build up their this, this network of, of organized dickheads who hate LGBTI people. Good to know. Yeah, and they're doing it again with Flower. And they wouldn't be able to do it if they weren't getting the the un, uncritical and shameless propaganda coverage of the nation's commercial media. So thanks guys. I guess the one thing I would leave the Falao stuff with is that even though we're not the ones pushing this, A, insofar as it's still in the media, we should be using it to push for employee rights at the expense of employers. And two, we should be highlighting at every step of the road that we're we're the ones who are in favour of free speech for employees. The other side aren't arguing for free speech. They're arguing for religious privilege. And we have to be really wary that they don't get away with somehow... A situation where we still don't have political free speech rights against employers. They can still sack us, but then the religious people have a special thing where they're the only ones who can't be sacked. They can demonize the rest of us, they can harm the rest of us, and they have a special, like, they really do have, like, God armor. They'll have God armor. Like, all they have to do is, like, say that they're, whatever they do is in defense of their religion, and they will be free to do it and protected by the law where the rest of us aren't. Right. I was amused to see that uh, Lyle Shelton, uh, formerly of the, a, of the A quote CL, was of course you know trying to do everything in his power to promote the uh, <laughs> Falau hysteria. Um, and you know he he uh, he wasn't able to donate to his campaign more than twenty dollars. Like he he sent the GoFundMe twenty dollars and then put this thing up about them refunding it. But yes, he. You would think, given the volume of tweets from Lyle Shelton, that he would have donated more than twenty dollars. But no, it's just the twenty bucks. I suppose the tweets, the tweets are like they're worth they're worth money, aren't they, Tom? They, they, I mean, each, each Lyle Shelton tweet's worth at least twenty bucks. So really, if you can, in, in for that, he really contributed more than just the twenty bucks, you know, on its face. Um, but I, I have been amused that he's he's running it that this this thing happening to flowers because of marriage equality. Like, if we hadn't had the marriage equality pass, then. Rugby Australia wouldn't have minded for our... Lyle does not understand the logical fallacy of... What's the Latin of it? It's like post hoc ergo propter hoc. The, the, this thing happened, therefore the thing that happened later is because of it, that thing. 
He loves that. Yeah, every bad thing that happens now is because of marriage equality and we were promised that nothing in the entire country of Australia was ever going to change and anything to do with queer rights in any context whatsoever is a direct result of that yes vote. Yeah, yeah, because if something happens after something else, then it must be caused by that thing. Um, yes. In the same way as Lyle Shelton joined the Australian Conservatives and now they have collapsed. <laughs> Two unrelated factors that have nothing to do with each other. Oh, what is he going to do now, actually? Where does he go? Where, where is the sympathy for Lyle's bloody Shelton? Mm. Uh, yes, Cory Bernardi's Australian Conservatives folding. And, and, he, and like he's not even trying to drum the libs now. He's just going to disappear off into, into nothingness. It's glorious, isn't it? Um, which is, I mean, at least when he goes off, he won't be able, because he never rose very high, he's not going to be able to do something hideous with the knowledge he acquired in his position unlike for example christopher pine tom what's christopher pine done he's doing the very wonderful um christian thing that i'm sure lyle supports which is uh joining the defense industry and helping out a company after being the defense industry minister um who's uh you know sells weapons around the world and uh makes things better for yemenis (laughs) so nothing wrong with leaving parliament and then like a month and a half later joining a company that will be directly dealing with your former department that you have a whole lot of inside knowledge of because you're the minister or you were the minister that's great. That That's couldn't, good. That couldn't possibly be, you know, contrary to the interests of Australians in general, could it? Absolutely not, baby! He's going to bring a lot of experience and uh, help E... What are they called? E9? Is that what they are? Or EY or something? EY? Uh, oh, E9 is like a gaming conference or something, isn't it? Um, EY he's sounds like help. something else. Um <laughs> They got all the wonderful opportunities that are coming in now, and you know it's an exciting time for arms manufacturers in the world at the moment. With you know maybe the war in Iran coming up, and uh, Saudi Arabia continuing to bomb the shit out of uh, Yemen and stuff. Like it's it's a really exciting time, and Christopher Pine is going to bring his extensive industry and focus on uh, this exciting um, area of, of capitalism and uh, and enterprise. And he's going to make things better for for everybody. I'm really reassured that the people in government are continuing to know that uh, whatever decisions they make that please defence industry contractors or uh, will lead to uh, lucrative jobs for them after Parliament. So they can definitely do those objectively and at arm's length and in the benefit in the interests of the you know ordinary voters. And yeah, particularly when we're looking at Scott Morrison talking about potentially taking us to water in Iran. Isn't that great? <sighs> is it the Greens who have a policy on on this? Like they want to pass legislation that would that would like ban you from entering anything after three years, or is that already the the law? Are there are there already some regulations about where where people can go after they leave office? Um, I'm fairly sure it's a long standing Green policy to put a restriction on on former ministers going off and joining companies after Parliament that are particularly ones that were associated with what they did. Um, and this is another example of why people should be voting for the Greens because the Labor and the Liberal parties aren't going to um, put up any kind of similar legislation unless they're forced to. And they're Because yeah. Labor does the same thing. What was it, Martin Ferguson going and working for the um, resources industry? All that stuff happens. For, it happens with both sides. It happens with the Libs a bit more um, because they're slightly more in, in tune with... Uh, the interests of, of the kind of industries that, that uh, are going to pay big bucks for that sort of thing. But Labor, Labor former ministers do this, do something similar. So, yeah, another reason to vote for the bloody Greens. Um, the war in Iran thing is, is weird. I mean, it's really disturbing. Every, everything to do with America this week in Australia is, is disturbing, including, what, earlier this morning, Donald Trump tweeting the, a picture of um, Australia's nasty anti-refugee advertising campaigns. And they're like, look, 
look how Australia deals with, with illegal immigrants. Um, as if refugees are illegal immigrants, which they're not. But anyway, um, yeah, isn't it great that Donald Trump is turning around and, and uh, promoting our hideous inhumanity to the world? Think of the erection that Scott Morrison would have when he sees that. When he sees that Big Daddy Wet Fat Trump is tweeting out how good we are how good is how good is Australia? No, so not, 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 uh, not, we're not we're not using, demonizing people. We're not saying that Scott Morrison. We're not using Scott Morrison being secretly gay as some kind of of attack because that 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 whole hey conservatives are gay thing is is um, no 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 that's feral. Not we're, gay. We're just, we're just saying that he he will have a, he has a, he will have a power or a, what would it even be like a, <laughs> a power erection? He'll just be aroused at the very idea that yeah, um, it, you know the leader of America, Donald Trump, would be heaping praise upon his horrific uh, refugee policies that he's fought so hard to uh, secure. I think that'll that'll give him oh, not, yeah. nothing nothing sexual, just something deep and arousal of <laughs> the nothing, human spirit will occur. about the erection. <laughs> but no, no, but you're right. Like, but it's not, it's not a not a sexuality thing. It's a um, combining his his uh, cruelty and and, uh, and and lack of humanity, but but having that praise from on high, where where the people he hates, uh, being you know people with moral compasses, criticizing him, he would see this as sort of a, a vicious repudiation of them. He's being re- being respected on high for his cruel stance. Like, yeah, I think that that heady mix altogether would be something that he would found. I think you're right. I think I think insofar as uh, we want to speculate on on what uh, floats Scott Morrison's boat, I'm pretty sure that that kind of stuff would be it. And now I feel dirty, but not in a good way. Mm. <laughs> Yuck! So yeah, so so he, I did I did like that he was out there. He's supposedly going to tell the US and China that their trade war has to stop, and that uh, you know Australia won't stand for it. Which is just the funniest mental image. Like, can you imagine the Chinese premier and uh, the American president standing there while Scott Morrison like wave his finger at them? Like, just, I oh, just, it'd be hilarious. Um, they will both look at us and say, "When we tell you how to ju- when to jump, you say how high, motherfucker." We're China and America. You are our bitch. Please, you don't tell us what to do. We'll have a trade war if we want. It's just. I'm just unbelievable, but and the way that the Australia—I don't—I don't know. That's what actually Australia's proposing to do. I think what Australia's proposing to do is to say, "Hey, can we mediate, please? We'll mediate. We'll be between. You know, we like you both, and we'll, we'll, let's let's mediate." I think that's what Australia's really doing. But the way it was being reported in the commercial media was like Australia was going to like put the you know lay down the law to these two naughty nations. <laughs> so it's, yeah, and yeah, and while uh, Scummo and the Libs have basically said, "Oh, look, you know, if we need to go to war in Iran, we'll go to war in Iran." Where do they think there's any kind of mandate for us getting involved in something so absurd? Mm. What what precedent could they possibly rely on to uh, <laughs> to action such a such a horrific intervention in the middle Middle East? When have we done that before? Hmm. I do love that it's exactly the same politicians who stand up on Anzac Day and and you know, Remembrance Day and mm. talk about how much they value the lives of our troops and the sacrifice of our troops and how how important the troops are. They're not actually concerned about them as human beings because they're more than happy to send them off to die in poorly thought through shitty wars with that are avoidable, that don't have any kind of um, proper thought through goal and aim and you know plan for... I, I'm not 100% a we-should-never-get-involved-in-wars person. I can see sometimes it would there are situations where um, sitting on the sidelines and watching you know genocide happen is morally indefensible but you need to go in when you're going to do something like that you need to it, first of all the world doesn't have the bodies to 
deal with these sorts of crimes properly and like the international criminal court uh doesn't doesn't you know the state countries like america won't won't let their citizens be subject to it so the entire process of dealing with tyrants and genocidal maniacs is is missing and it's missing largely as a result of the um refusal to abide by it by the kind of countries that are out there going oh we should do something about this um but if you were going to go and do something like iraq certainly there's a case to be made for dealing with hussein on the basis that he was a genocidal maniac but only if you're going to do it once and fix it properly and the premise is to protect human lives and you know you're doing it on the basis that there is going to be a sacrifice here but the in the long term the outcome we're going to rebuild it in a way that it's going to prevent that from ever having to happen again as opposed to what we actually did which is go in there smash up the place and leave it worse and that is what inevitably will happen again yeah. if we go to iran i mean there is a point where you sort of say we're not good at this yeah <laughs> and if you want if you want a big fat shining example of how this kind of shit works out you have to look at the war in iraq which people still you know, psychopaths still will not admit was a bad thing that resulted in the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people and was based on a fucking lie. Even Iraq. You had Afghanistan. We were in Afghanistan. Like, when we went into Iraq, we already had the example that we couldn't do this because we'd gone and smashed up Afghanistan and not fixed it. Yeah. If your premise is to get to a positive outcome for the people in this country, there will need to be a limited amount of actual violence to get there. Um, but we will keep it to a minimum and it's and, and we'll make sure that it never has to happen again. Like that sacrifice is a horrendous one and people going supporting it need to recognise the horror of it and that it's only that it's the lesser of two evils but not something that we should be happy about or anything. It's like... But you only do it if that sacrifice is going to be actually the last time it has to be paid. And if you can't do that, don't freaking do it. Don't, don't have all these people die and then it even be worse than before you went in. Like, and we can't do it. We haven't ever demonstrated we can do it until you have a, a a system that you can actually do it in a way that actually is the lesser of two evils. And yet we still don't, like, you still have all these leaders who are like, well, we value the sacrifice of the troops, but we'll throw them away to die on, on a, you know, on this chaos that we haven't thought through. We don't have a, we don't have a plan. We didn't have a plan in Iraq. We don't have a plan for Iran. All we have to do, all we do is go in there and smash shit up. And kill people, and it's so depressing because I would say, you know, if 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 this gets any, gathers any serious steam, I mean, we have to fucking yell from the rooftops and do everything possibly can, including civil disobedience, mm. in order to form a strong stop war coalition. But oh God. And then I, I think about the Iraq War, and I think the this the huge movement, mass movement of people in opposition to that war was completely ignored. It didn't matter; it didn't change a single thing. It's um, we still it'll need be to do quite it. dispiriting. Still need to do it, sure, but I. It, it'll be even more challenging than ever before to convince people that it's worth getting out there and that, that, that you can actually have effect on those kind of foreign foreign policy decisions, you know? Yeah. And just in case it sounded like I was a bit hawkish on this stuff, I'm not. Like, like, like the fundamental premise is that the moral choice of do we do something or nothing, you know, is, 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 is this... Is this horror less than the horror of doing nothing? That that moral choice actually never eventuates because we don't live in a world in which any of the pow- powerful people are going to go and rebuild these countries in an ethical way. We don't have any... The, the, the moral dilemma doesn't arise because all they're ever proposing to do is to make things worse. So 
yeah, insofar as so, yeah, this is none of these are examples of of where any of these things should have been supported by anyone. And well, the the case of Iran is so fucking insane because the Trump administration tore up yeah. the non proliferation deal, like the the use of diplomacy, which didn't result in the death of anybody, uh, that that was actually working yeah. and was finding some kind of diplomatic solution to the genuine the genuine threat or the concerns that are raised by the Iranian regime. Uh, was completely thrown away by the Trump administration. A deal was made. They threw out the, the, the deal. Now they're getting angry at Iran for not holding up their side of the deal that the US has just completely jacked and, and thrown into the bin anyway. I mean, there's just there is no justification whatsoever. And they are trying. They are trying so hard. They're not even doing a very good job now of trying to whip up some bullshit about some tankers and some shot-down drones that were probably in Iranian airspace anyway. No, they were definitely in Iranian airspace. Like, the, the tanker was in Iranian <laughs> waters. They were, they, the, air, the, the drones were in Iranian airspace. Like, this is madness. John Bolton, the National Security Advisor, like, has, has said ages ago, he's like, our goal should be regime change in Iran. So so all this kind of we don't want war bullshit positioning they try to bull, like, hey, we don't want war, but if bad stuff happens, then we're going to have to do it. It's all a lie. It's all a bullshit. It is Iraq redux. It is the Gulf of Tonkin redux. It's Iran redux, like Astra- what they did with the, originally <laughs> with the Shah. Like, the, the, Iran is already a mess because of the bloody um, Americans and the British. Like, the reason yeah. why the, it's, it's a theocratic um, totalitarian state is because of what they bloody did in the first place. They didn't like that yeah, they had maybe. a, a, a um, democratically elected leader. They overthrew him and put them in the shower. Like, like, this whole chaos is because of them fucking around with the country. And again, if, you're, if your country is like Australia and America who don't have um, any genuine human rights protections, who um, are busy brutalising refugees... Um, and let's talk about that for a second. But yeah, in relation to the war thing, you don't get to stand up and be lecturing other countries on human rights while you're busy abusing them in the way that we do. For God's sake, I mean, we certainly should be advocating for human rights, but um, in terms of turning around and being like, we're going to invade you and use this as an excuse, get stuffed. Yeah, no good, everyone. No good, I say. The refugee charged with suicide and arson. Oh, God. Okay, we're finishing on this. Here we go. <laughs> well, it's that or Dutton claiming that uh, we need to get rid of the Medivac legislation because refugees are faking being raped to come to Australia. Okay, so what's the deal? PNG police will charge a man with arson uh, and attempted suicide after he set fire to himself and his room at asylum seeker accommodation at Manus Island. And what can you get for that? You could get for life. You could get life imprisonment or twenty years for imprisonment. For the arson, I think you get a year for the suicide. Oh my god. So good, good work Australia sending people to a country where that is a thing that can happen to them. Great. Yeah, if we invade you, if we support the US invasion of, of Iran, yeah, make sure you get on a boat and come down to Australia. It's good stuff. Oh, I mean, that's the other thing. Like, we're, we're busy smashing up countries and then we're like, yes, but the refugees who are fleeing the places that, we're, that are so bad that we're saying we have to smash them up, that's not a reason that you should be able to come here. Like, we're all over the place. Yes, quite quite a few Iranian uh, refugees in the offshore detention system, actually. There are quite a few of the men uh, on uh, on Manus Island are Iranian. And, of course, if you're Iranian, you're not going to be resettled in the US, are you? Um, but, but uh, yeah, the regime's so bad that we should invade the country, but we shouldn't give you asylum when you come to us asking for help as you escape that very regime. Oh, I love it. What a, what a country. What, what a country. What a country. <laughs> Uh, what do we do? Uh, we, I don't know, don't vote for the parties that do this shit. <laughs> um, and we point out to everybody that is considering voting for those parties. Oh, look, I guess I guess what we can do about it is um, anyone who's missed this, because it's certainly not like the, that, that um, story has been picked up and 
run in the you know news court papers or the commercial media generally like there's lots of people who haven't heard that we have literally sent people refugees to a place which will charge them when they are so such in in such a hopeless situation that that setting themselves on fire seems the only um, appropriate or only possible way forward people aren't hearing about that and i think it probably should be pointed out to them particularly people who vote for the labor or the liberal parties yeah, someone pointed out to me, you know, remember when uh, Bob Brown yelled at uh, George Bush when he came, for, <laughs> came at, uh, to, to speak at Parliament and yelled out in protest and, oh, yeah. think, you know, was saying he should be prosecuted for war crimes. I want a bit of that back into Australian uh, politics, please. Do you remember when all the, all the Libs, like, did the sort of rugby thing of, like, blocking him, stopping him being... Oh, no, was he, he was banned. No, that's right. They blocked him from getting near Bush. And then the next day, like the Chinese premier spoke, and Brian was banned from the parliament, so he couldn't be critical of China's human rights abuses. Jesus Christ! Ah, uh, good times. Come on. What good a country! Times. Well, yes, a bit more of that, please. That'd be, that'd be. I know Bob Brown has, you know, got some issues of late, and his interventions in the Greens party has been difficult. But uh, I still think of those moments that I like, and I think we need a bit more of that, particularly as the. Uh, yeah, as the challenges we're facing get more and more radical and insane, we need some more and more radical action to take it on, I think. Yeah, and I think that the lesson from this week is that we can't rely on the ALP to be standing up for any of these sensible no. things. And you know what? I reckon that I reckon that the, the lesson we should be taking from this week is like like with the centre, standing out in front of, you know, putting signs up near centering offices, I reckon that the Greens need to be right now and we need to be telling the Greens people that we are in contact with we need you guys to be campaigning right now consistently for the next over the next three years. We need you to be, you know, we need signs outside um, sampling offices pointing out that you're the only party that's supporting uh, raising Newstart and, and actually having a decent social safety net and getting rid of the, all the holes that the Libs and the... And, and, well, the Libs are cutting in it and Labor keep saying they support. Um, but they also... You're, like, I think the Greens need to be... Yeah, okay, the climate thing is terrifying and what, what we've got Europe having a huge heat wave at the moment and what India the other week was like 50 degrees all over the like we're, that's terrifying and yes okay I get the Greens have to highlight the climate emergency as well but I think that the thing that'll get you more votes and the thing that that will do a lot of good for Australians in general is we need the Greens if you're going to be a progressive party not just an environmental party we need you to be um, out there shouting against this stuff and, and like raising hell like we all need there need to be boots on the ground we need to be doing it now it takes time to get this stuff going. All right, Tom, we've worked ourselves into a, a corner of horror. Can you, can you get us out? Tom, you're, you're here to save us from our corner of horror. Tom Ballard, you are our only hope. <laughs> oh, God, a lot of pressure. Look, yeah, well, no, I'm not at all. And uh, don't look for me. Look to me for hope, that's for sure. I'm, I'm a dumb comedian. But I would say the only thing, the thing that consistently keeps me going in such times is the fact that when when things seem like they're at the uh, at the worst, it's always darkest before the dawn, yada, 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 in these moments when the Labour Party is so fundamentally disappointing and, and, and a nightmare, this is when new radical alternatives start to bubble up and start to get a bit of traction. I mean, I think only after the election of Donald Trump could you seriously get people talking about a Green New Deal. Uh, and talking about big radical ideas um, that, say, Bernie Sanders is proposing. Um, Jeremy Poxon and Tash Neenan and John Baccini wrote this piece for Junkie about what a Green New Deal in Australia might look like. Jed Carney from Labor has talked about, you know, she thinks we should support a jobs guarantee for working people to try and seriously get people back into meaningful work. That's exciting. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's 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 depressing that 
at the moment doesn't look like those kind of serious progressive radical changes are going to come from within the political class and within the parliament um, unless we push them really really hard at it but those ideas are out there and I sincerely believe that there are growing movements and people who can rise up and champion them seriously um, you know in, in the public square and for me that's you know ideas around socialism and anti-capitalist ideas and um, some radical big picture ideas that that capture people's imagination and it seems like the leadership of the Labour Party isn't learning the lesson of the 2019 election at all and are moving towards the centre and um, chucking out a bunch of things that you would hope they would they would double down on. But people to their left in that party, outside of that party, within the union movement, um, parties like Victorian Socialists or the Greens, I think they're there and they are slowly but surely building building support. So that's where I find a bit of hope. Is that any good? <laughs> I'm going to try. Like, Obviously, the biggest problem we have one of these problems we have is that we can't you know the, the media concentration means it's really hard getting any of these messages out there and apart from podcasts and the guardian yeah it kind of it kind of feels like we need to be having actual to, to get that those campaigns need to be promoted and the only way to promote them is physically out there on the streets really and it's going to take time and effort which we have three years until the next election so <laughs> i guess i guess we should be I, I guess i think that's part of the problem with how we reacted to uh, 2016, as opposed to how the Libs reacted to 2010, which is that the, we're, we've been very slow on getting started on campaigning for 2022. Mm. Um, and I feel that, like, instead of sort of waffling around in the doldrums, yeah, I think I think we need to be out there. Basically, you know, you know the American thing, like the campaign for the next election starts the day after the previous one. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I feel like that's what we need to be doing on the left now. I also think there's an interesting kind of um, open question about what the Morrison administration is going to achieve. I mean, once the tax cuts thing is out of the way, what's the next big legislative agenda they have? I'm not saying they don't have one. I'm, I'm saying they'll try and get stuff up in the parliament. But if it's not if it's not something that we heard anything about during the election campaign, there's a very, very strong case for Labor being able to, you know, um, oppose literally everything they put up there because no doubt they will be shitty ideas. Um, they'll have no mandate argument at all from the public whatsoever. Um, and I think there's a chance that we could make it, you know, one of the least sort of effective or consequential um, administrations in a very, very long time. That would be a good thing. It would, but I don't I don't know that we've got the votes to stop them. And they have the problem is that they've got the enormous cheerleading support of, of all the muddy commercial media. So, yeah, the next thing that will happen will be um, they'll try. I mean, I'm fascinated about what they'll try for the religious privilege legislation because I don't think that they can deliver what they are saying they can deliver for the religious right. I don't think that the... They, like, there isn't a way of drafting legislation that gives... Unless you specifically call it the Christian privilege legis legislation, you're up front that it's just like um, Christians can do what they like and the rest of you can get stuffed. Unless you draft it in a way that specifies Christians, any privileges they give mm. are going to if they're limited to religious people they're still going to go to religions that they don't like yeah and that their supporters don't like and if they're drafted in a way that actually protects the rest of us then they'll be really pissing off um the you know the employer class that, that they are advocating for so there's not like i i would be fascinated to see how they how they like I, i'm really worried or have been really worried about what they'll put up but thinking about it like it's pretty hard for them to put in legislation the, the outcome that they want without being much more overt about it than they are. Um, 
But in terms of the other shit they'll do, well, it's the ratchet. So this is the point where they've got the money that they're giving away um, to the rich. The, ra- the next bit of the ratchet is they'll kick the poor in the face and make, uh, you know, cut more people off Centrelink and, uh, you know, cut more public services and make Medicare, um, you know, worse. And, you know, the the classic thing is I had to ring the um, transport agency the other day because you don't have a choice if, you, if you're, you know, if you're in that situation, you, you've got to deal with them. And I was on hold for like, what, 45 minutes before a human being came on the line? Like, the classic thing of running... This this is the liberal... This is what conservatives do. They say that government is terrible at doing things, and then when they get in government, they demonstrate that because they make it shit at doing things. And people are really bad at turning around at, at a badly run government service and saying, hang on, this isn't because government services are fundamentally flawed. This is because they're not being run well by the conservative, by the right-wing parties that don't believe in them. So we should kick them out and put in parties that actually run them properly. And instead, they, they get away with running these things into the ground so that people then direct their resentment at the very idea of government rather than at, at the specific people who do it badly. So yeah, I, I I know what this government will do, which is continue to run public services into the ground because that's their DNA. Yeah. Well, I tried to make people happy. What are you doing? <laughs> Maybe my daughter can make cute noises in the background and, that, and that'll make up for all of the horrifying things, noises coming yes. out of our mouths in the foreground. Can I plug my comedy shows? That'll make people happy. That is, you know, that's right. What can people do to feel happier this week? <laughs> they can go to Tom Ballard's comedy shows. Tom, what what are you? What is happening at the moment? What are, what are you doing? <laughs> oh, I'm just doing my show enough in Melbourne, in Collingwood, at the Easy Street Concert Hall on Friday and Saturday night. That's the 28th and 29th. And it's a very funny setup show about how um, capitalism is killing us all. Yeah. Kids are welcome. But uh, yeah, come on down. Uh, this is the last time I'll be doing the show in Melbourne and it's called Enough. The link's at um, comedy.com.au if you want to come along and uh, have a lovely laugh. That sounds absolutely lovely and a fine antidote to paying attention to what's going on in the world. Yes. <laughs> Tell you what, Tom, ne- next time there is a moment that you're maybe preparing a comedy show, maybe just otherwise tuning into what's the horrors that are happening in our world and something something occurs and you're like you know what this makes me happy this maybe it's all going to be all right on that week can you come back on the podcast because i feel bad about every time i ask you on the podcast and it's a week like this one deal all right we'll get back together for the happy news podcast that'd be great all right, thank you so much for coming back on. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you to the Patreon subscribers who keep the podcast running, even even though it's pretty bitter medicine in these times. Thank you, Robin Gray, for the music. Thank you, Alex Lum, for the artwork. And we will see you all next week. Bye, everyone. Bye.